Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And I'm Alva. And on this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we do a special roundup of 2020. So Stephen, if you had to pick a moment of the year in politics, what would it be and why? So I'm actually going to cheat and go for a non-moment, mm-hmm. which was the the moment when we did not, at the end of June, as we would have had to to get an extension, seek an extension to the transition period for the Brexit negotiations, right? Yeah, this was, yes, a period when we were still unlocking, but in a period where anyone who looked at it sensibly knew that we would, well, by that point, you could you could go, okay, actually, we, we can say pretty safely that whether it's palliative treatments or a vaccine, something will happen to mean that this is not, you know, like an indefinite way of living. But broadly, the situation we find ourselves in at time of recording where we are either going to get a not particularly great deal I don't just mean that in terms of we will get a hard Brexit. I mean, broadly, like the, the cliff edge does serve the European Union's interests better than the United Kingdom's because they are larger. The economic shock is therefore more diffused. And we have not been able to do, I'm not saying you could plan for it perfectly, but many businesses have used their no deal contingencies to handle the pandemic, deter many households. So we either have a much more painful no deal Brexit or this thing is, if, if you buy into the government's argument about the value of no deal, it's a negotiating technique, you, we should have extended the transition. If you don't buy into that and you think it's a disaster, we should have extended the transition. There's really no argument other than the government's fundamentally not serious about Brexit, fundamentally not serious about the pandemic, and fundamentally not serious about any of its policy agenda, which I would argue was in many ways the overarching story of like Boris Johnson being given this majority than David Cameron and Theresa May would have killed for and then proceeding to do really literally nothing with it. Yeah, there's nothing they could have implemented because of the pandemic, right? But like, they could have still passed a bunch of consequential legislation, or they could at least look like they might at some point be interested in that. And yeah, so that's one to me, like the central point, not least because I will one way or the other influence what happens with Brexit at the end of this year, is that decision to kind of go, hey guys, just in case you were in any doubt, we're not a serious outfit anymore. Alva, what about you? So I'm similarly going to cheat slightly and do a personal kind of political moment of the year and then a political moment of the year. So the first one is actually my, my one of my prevailing memories of the start of this year is a conversation in early February with Stephen in the office. I think Patrick was in Westminster and we were in the New Statesman offices on Essex Street where none of us had been for quite a while 
I think we were sort of we were joking about a colleague who's a real germaphobe who was seeming to be was seemed to be a little bit nervous about coronavirus but Stephen was saying that he was quite concerned about it too and I remember him saying you don't seem that worried about this and I said oh you know I just don't I think it's a bit like bird flu isn't it it's just not really going to affect me <laughs> I'll you know I'll take it seriously if I'm if I'm told to but you know I just you know think there's no need to worry and, and Stephen said yeah I think that that's that's wise you know that's sensible but I do think it's at, a, at some point we're all gonna have to work from home at least for a bit this year and I remember just saying something like no no way I think credit where credit's due to Stephen for I really do think it was very early February at least having some sense of what was coming at that point working from home for a bit was just the most shocking idea to me and you were totally proved right and I think that probably everyone looking back on this year will have a memory of hearing about coronavirus for the first time I mean if you're if you're very on the ball it will have been last year but people have a memory maybe of thinking about coronavirus when it was just a far off unknown thing in China and then a second moment where they realized quite how serious this would be and how much it would cause upheaval in in all of our lives so then the second one obviously the the three defining early moments were Boris Johnson telling everyone to work from home if you can and to wash your hands at the point right before the proper lockdown where many people including everyone at the new statesman was already working from home and we know from the statistics that came out afterwards a lot of people were voluntarily locking down as other countries were and then the following week the proper national lockdown announced by Boris Johnson and then my actual big political moment of the year was the night that Boris Johnson went into ICU just in terms of the encapsulating what so many people will have been going through this year I think that was a sort of a shared national moment where regardless of your politics I think any any thinking person will have will have thought for at least a second you know gosh there, there is a you know quite serious chance that the prime minister is going to die tonight and we know from accounts afterwards that that really was a very distinct possibility and I don't have a big political lesson from that, but I think that as well as, you know, the the famous trip to Barnard Castle, that will be one of the defining memories that people have of this year. And it's certainly one of mine. I remember talking to my mum about it and talking, you know, every single group chat was talking about Boris Johnson being in, in ICU. And I think that was just a, a sort of a scary moment where the, the vague pandemic that we were fighting in the abstract and that had already hit quite close to home for a lot of people was hitting quite close to home like right at the very very top of the systems of power in the United Kingdom Anush what would yours be? So my moment that I've chosen to sort of remember on this podcast was when Tower Hamlets Council decided to close the biggest park in the borough it's a East London borough called Victoria Park that was closed until further notice two days after the lockdown and I think it represented for me as I think we spoke about on the podcast that week one of the biggest patterns in the government's coronavirus response, and I know it's a cliche, but also the way that the pandemic response in this country has amplified existing problems and exacerbated existing problems, particularly in terms of inequality and and, and society. So 
that decision meant that a lot of the population of the borough who live in flats and don't have access to outdoor space had their outdoor space even more limited and you could see that physically physically around you as you as you walked around the borough and it represented to me a dislocation between um the people who were making policy decisions this year and the reality for people on the ground and i think we've seen that inequality playing out you know i i've interviewed so many people in different scenarios on the front line or just sort of stuck in their home homes, some of whom have had to use universal credit for the very first time and and are finding themselves in dire straits for the first time, some who already were working, you know, precarious jobs and unmanageable hours who who have had their their lives negatively impacted by the spread of the virus and their shaky employment rights. And as well as that, you have people who are managing to work from home for the whole time and no longer have to pay to, to commute anywhere and they're actually saving money. So you, you can see how that inequality is sort of being amplified through this period. And some of these failings have been represented in other parts of our politics. So we had the Windrush Lessons Learned Review, which came out in, I think that came out in March. And obviously that was slightly drowned out by the by the sort of ensuing lockdown that was happening then. But that found the Home Office to have a lack of humanity and also its behaviour towards the Windrush generation was was found to be consistent with some elements of the definition of institutional racism. And we see that some of that has not been fixed throughout the year because recently the EHRC found that the Home Office's hostile environment policy actually broke equality law. And we spoke about it on the previous podcast, so I won't talk about it too much now, but the Grenfell inquiry has also been ongoing this year and has exposed more facets of the sort of inequality in this country, but also, again, the dislocation between the people who are making the policies and enacting them and the people who have those policies done to them as well. So I don't think Britain has has come out in a particularly flattering light in terms of the pandemic especially regarding the sort of indirect socio-economic patterns that we've seen play out while we've all been trying to get through it. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, and now it's time for a bumper edition of You Ask Us. We're going to take a number of questions that people have submitted about things that have happened all year rather than just the previous few days. So the first question from Ishrak. Before Cummings's resignation, much of the media believed he was the real mastermind to the PM's project. Now that he's gone, is Boris done for? So as like, you know, someone who was a bit of a Cummings sceptic as a like governing influence, because if you know, if you read his blog, let alone if you read any of the stuff that he referenced in his, his his blog, and you kind of take it seriously, you very rapidly are just like, but this doesn't mean anything. The freaks and weirdos thing is a, a classic example, right? Like broadly, 
everyone in the kind of like super forecaster, particularly everyone in the like super forecaster, how can we use data to do better governance, who's also on the right economically, those people have had a, a fantastic pandemic, right? They all thought you should lock down very early. They all thought you should bet very hard that scientific innovation would mean that a long time before global lending conditions went, wait, we're going to be living like this forever. So this doesn't seem sustainable. Like long before any of the, any of those issues could potentially, yeah, I'm pardon from the fact obviously some people don't think those issues can ever arise, but obviously these people do think those issues can arise. They've been completely validated and... Don Cummings loves to present himself as someone who like is in that world, was going to hire loads of people from that world. And when he was given the ability to do unlimited hiring, he hired a bunch of people who he knew from Boat Leave, a bunch of people who were kind of like Conservative Party adjacent anyway. And the government he was supposedly a key member of failed to sort of learn the one thing to be in power this year and mess up in the same way as most Western European governments, right? Clearly, many of these faults, or some of them I think are specific to the British state, many of these faults are specific problems in terms of how Western European democracies have reacted. And I don't know why that is, but it is clearly something that is is worthy of further study. But on this specific issue, right, like his tendency did get this right, and he still mucked it up. And I kind of think that just as we saw this, you know, you were observed Boris Johnson as, as mayor of London in the first year. Right. He similarly had like a bunch of like explosive people, people who would, you know, like do a lot of the kind of like, you know, so much of the briefing around Dom is stuff like stories told about him to make him seem sort of like a significant figure. Some of which are just obviously ridiculous, like the whole like Dom's rule that you can, no one can earn more than 100K in order to stay in touch as if earning 100K means that you're, you know, plugged into the life of the median voter in the United Kingdom. And what what happened in City Hall and what I think we're starting to see happen now is after a while, because because he is someone who doesn't want to do the like day-to-day stuff and wants to be there being like, my big vision, or, or, or aren't we a great country? Eventually he just goes, do you know what? I'm tired of having this like personally combative, balding man wandering around the building like a bad smell. I just want to get a serious civil servant to be my chief of staff. I just want to get someone who's like got huge broadcast experience to be my press secretary. And I kind of think that, to be honest, I think if you're on the left, and obviously not all of our listeners are, but if you're on the left, I think you will genuinely enjoy the next stage of Boris Johnson a lot less. Because I think there will be far fewer kind of like government sets itself on fire, fails to pass some legislation which shouldn't be that controversial, doesn't actually seem all that likely to do anything and I think it will become a slightly more orthodox but probably also I mean I was actually probably also it could hardly be less successful it will be a more successful traditional right-wing government whether that is what the electoral coalition that delivered Boris Johnson his majority wants of course is the open question but I actually think Boris Johnson's second phase of his premiership will be considerably more successful than the first from a sort of right-wing perspective because like people who who aren't combative self-mythologizers are in charge i actually think this is such a good question because i think probably to some extent we don't have the answer yet in that it has been difficult over the past year to know where to attribute decision making within downing street that definitely there's been a tendency in parts of the media, but then also just in the public imagination to just sort of assume that anything a bit explosive, what originated from Dominic Cummings, when definitely as a bare minimum that originated, it often originated from his close ally, Lee Kane, who is also now gone. But even more broadly, now that he has left, 
I don't think that some of the broader directions of the government are changing that much in terms of the approach it takes to equalities issues to to take something today Liz Truss's speech on moving away from race and gender equality as a particular focus and towards addressing poverty that's the kind of thing that we were seeing from from the government the kind of approach to culture wars issues that we were seeing all of this year and that's clearly going to continue without Dominic Cummings in the room but as you say Stephen also I think we might see a, a more slick approach I me mean, sorry to be the bearers of, of bad news people people did comment on Twitter that last the last episode was a particularly glum one so so it's great Stephen that you've announced that next year is, is going to be even worse in terms of being a left winger following this government yeah because I think we probably will see a more professionalized Downing Street operation I would humbly recommend that listeners who haven't already take a look at my profile of the new Downing Street chief of staff Dan Rosenfield who is in many ways the antithesis of what Dominic Cummings preached about the establishment and so on he's a real product of the Whitehall machine and of various top British institutions and you know worked very closely with a Labour chancellor and then a Conservative chancellor is sort of beloved by the political establishment for what for want of a better phrase and has shown to just be very effective at getting things done so I think that some of the broad themes might stay the same but we might see see a slicker approach without Dominic Cummings the genius who went to Barnard Castle. Yeah, I think that is such a good piece. I really enjoyed it. And I would suggest all listeners go and read it because it it really explains the sort of changing of the guard in Downing Street and the sort of wider implications of it as well. We're putting an A to Z of the year together um, at the moment. And I had to write up the beers for Barnard Castle entry. And what I found really interesting when I was writing it up was the very real Dominic Cummings effect on the polls and and the sort of levels of public trust in the government after that that saga. And then, of course, Keir Starmer was asking Boris Johnson about him having his his pay rise as well. Dominic Cummings having a pay rise in PMQs yesterday, and it just seems that this this man's myth. And also his his character kind of has dogged Boris Johnson and has been more of a kind of punching bag for the opposition than really very useful to the Downing Street operation. So I would say that Boris Johnson isn't done for without him. It's probably going to be easier for him once these Dominic Cummings stories stop having salience and once he's no longer as associated with, with his administration, it will be easier for him from a PR perspective as well. And what a price to pay as well. When you When you look back at how much political capital the government expended defending him because the calculation by Boris Johnson at the heart of Downing Street was that they couldn't get rid of Dominic Cummings. He was completely indispensable at this time of crisis when barely, you know, just over six months, seven months or whatever later, he's gone. And so far, there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference. I mean, you do sort of wonder how on earth you could justify the benefit against the huge cost of that Barnard Castle incident and then declining to to sack him afterwards. What I think is interesting about it, uh, and, we, and we should, of course, move on to, uh, to other questions, but the whole point of super forecasting, right, is not, as Don Cummings often seem to think it is, like, do you get things right? It's also about what are you doing about your downside risk? And at every stage, right, from, like, not locking down that early, from the approach to Christmas 
from our approach to this to the EU negotiations to this kind of like, oh yeah, why don't we exert a huge amount of political capital, annoy so many of our own MPs, annoy so many voters, probably do real harm to compliance with the lockdown regulations. At no point does anyone seem to have gone, wait a second, what is the downside risk here of him doing a fake apology and then like popping up again in however many months' time, being rehired after the local elections or whatever? And it just does sum up, like, I just think the ways than than, than they are going to be much better off without him because his, his skills have never really been about the awkward stuff that happens between running around the country saying that the other lot are traitors. So this is a question from Nathan Baroda, who gets props for sending in his full name because so many of the questions are anonymous. He asks, who are the stars of the 2019 intake on both sides? Anush, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, um, I think it's quite a difficult question because it's been a difficult year for the 2019 intake. They obviously all came in bright eyed and with all of their ideas and the campaigns that they wanted to make their defining sort of first year in Parliament. But they couldn't because of because of the pandemic. But I'm going to take two MPs, one from the Tories and one from Labour, who I think are sort of emblematic of what's interesting about the 2019 intake on both sides. So for the Tories, I've chosen the Totnes MP, Anthony Mag- because he was the only Tory from the new new intake to rebel in the Huawei vote. And obviously, Huawei's infrastructure is going to be stripped out of the UK's 5G network now. And I just think he sort of re- represents the rebelliousness of the new 2019 Tory MPs and sort of how they could cause problems for Boris Johnson down the line. Half a dozen of them rebelled against the tier system as well. I think he was one of them. So I think perhaps he hasn't been given the chance to shine that new MPs would 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 want to be given but I think he represents an interesting trend in the Conservative Party that will manifest itself on other policy issues into next year and then on the Labour side I think we've spoken about her before on the podcast but I think Nadia Whittam's been really interesting so she set her salary at 35k and then donated the rest to charity and she also spoke about how they didn't have PPE at the care home where, where she was working at so I thought that was quite interesting and, and really chimed with key issues at the time. And as well as that, she did rebel and lost her front bench role on the overseas operation bill too, which I think is representative of that sort of group of left-wing MPs who could cause trouble for, for Keir Starmer down the line on, on future votes and on future policy issues as well. Well, Anush, I promised to listeners that I didn't set this up, but um, you're in for a treat because I'm actually in the middle of writing up an interview with Nadia Whitten. Oh, wow. And she is also my pick for the best 2019 intake MP on the Labour side. In terms of everything that you mentioned, but actually I think particularly towards the end of this year, she has just been a really interesting example of a new Labour MP forging her own path so she would be very much from the left of the party. When she came into Parliament, you would have classed her as a Corbynite, and she's a member of the Socialist Campaign Group and so on. But she has become, I think, the most distinctive Socialist MP and Labour MP, basically, because, as you mentioned, she has been critical of the leadership on certain decisions in many cases decisions that we also thought were bad ideas such as the overseas operation bill which as you said Anush she lost her her front bench position over and she's also been quite outspoken about trans rights and sort of differing slightly from the leadership 
on that one, at least in terms of how vocal she is on it. But then I think what makes her particularly interesting is the, the sort of the subtle ways in which she differentiates herself from the left of her party. She took a very clear line on anti-Semitism when the EHRC report came out, wrote a, a very persuasive piece for Labour List about the problem of anti-Semitism on the left and took quite a lot of flack for, for it from people on her own side. I hope that people enjoy the interview with her because she does talk about that, about how she sort of, what she thinks Labour's strategy should be going going forward. And she has lots of interesting ideas on, on that and about the culture war and economic policy, how Keir Starmer is doing. But she also has a lot of thoughts about about how the left organises itself and sort of reflects in a very, I think she she came across as a very poised politician one of the kind of most shrewd I think I've interviewed all year but she talks a little bit about you know thinking for herself and not co-opting her thinking on on certain issues and I, I think it just she's she's a really interesting example on on the labor side so I'm glad we're in agreement there but then I think on the conservative side just briefly I would say the 2019 conservative intake has to be Deanna Davison who is the new MP for Bishop Auckland. I think credit where credit is due, Deanna Davison has managed in the minds of, I think a lot of members of the public and a lot of people who follow politics and including a lot of Westminster journalists to come to just represent the 2019 intake on her own. Because we did a podcast about the 2019 conservative intake not that long ago. And it took Stephen to say, you know, actually the 2019 intake is not that different to other intakes. To really, I think, clarify for me that people have taken her kind of politics, you know, someone in a in a former red wall seat who is standing up for her constituency and those interests while being sort of young and cool and loving Taylor Swift and having a great sense of style and having a very good social media game. She's just come to be thought of as like what they're all like because she's the she's become the face of the 2019 intake probably massively distorting what that group of MPs is like but I think she's been punching above her weight and she's already being discussed as a future minister and I think that's quite likely so I think we'll we'll hear more about her next year. Stephen who who would your 2019 intake best MPs be? Oh god I'm gonna I'm literally wearing a grey cardigan while I say this I'm going to become even more of a premature granddad than I actually am. But like the fascinating thing, I think, always about new parliamentary intakes is when they arrive, right, two types of new MPs get talked up. Former special advisors who obviously journalists have a pre-existing contact relationship with and they kind of know of. right? So, you know, whether it's Oliver Dowden in 2015 or Ed Balls in 2005 or Ed Miliband in 2005 or David Miliband in 2001 or... David Cameron in 2001 or Rebecca Cooper in 1997, right? These people who arrive as, as entities, right? They arrive as a force. And then you have people who kind of like, you know, give like, a, you know, a, a good maiden speech. Yeah, kind of, or, or, you know, so someone like, say, Kemi Badnock, or I don't know why I feel the need to list multiple people here. Yeah, or someone who... Mary like, Black. Mary Black, yeah. Like someone who, or someone who like gives really good quote, like Jess Phillips, or has a good Twitter game. And what tends to happen is there's like a winnowing down of people who it then turns out, you know, they're promoted too soon or they actually have the political instincts of a, of a brick or, you know, it's, or, and, you know, like, 
<laughs> and then the, the other group of people who kind of get written up, not so much unfairly in this case, but like, like I think Nadia Whittam is hugely, hugely interesting, really impressive. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to editing and reading the interview. But it's a lot easier to be her than it is to be a sort of properly loyalist kind of like the line to take is we must all do this thing to defend Jeremy Corbyn or the line to take is that it is definitely not worrying that Keir Starmer has twice in two weeks failed like yeah like he's, he's clearly identified that the other person is wrong whether it's this far right caller on on LBC or Boris Johnson getting his borough wrong but in both cases he's kind of done this kind of quite immobile like I say I disagree with you but I can't really articulate why and this is certainly not a worrying sign for any TV debates I might have to do in 2024. But like, it's difficult to have to to to, to defend a position, right? Uh, and not to harsh on Jess Phillips too much, right? But like, Jess Phillips kind of demonstrates that, right? Jess Phillips, you know, like huge media star because you know she's gives good quote and she like was funny and shot from the hip. But now she's like doing like important, worthy stuff as like shadow minister for domestic violence. Does anyone read about her in the papers? No, of course not, because that's a much more difficult job. So this is like a really kind of long winded way of being like, so basically, because I'm, you know, jaded, I, I refuse now to be like, so and so is good. But I think the, the interesting thing, because politics <laughs> has been has been frozen by the 20- 20... poor new MPs, they've been through <laughs> enough. <laughs> they've been through enough, I'm just like, let's face it, most of them... Is someone a side-like day? So the people who I think are the ones who are kind of like, the people who've been slept on, because if normal politics were happening, they'd be getting written up are three people from from the two governing parties and 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 the main opposition right alan smith who was the snp's policy convener until he was defeated at conference this year because of the revolt against the leadership it's about you know about a number of things right it's about how incremental they should be or not incremental on on the issue of a second referendum it's about trans rights and the ways that that has and obviously there's a variety of perspectives about whether or not that is a severe divide, a weaponized divide, or is, yeah, or, but yeah, and of course, Alex Salmon's trial. But yeah, he's their foreign affairs spokesperson. He was an MEP. He's, you know, someone who actually in some ways, and I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because he will not thank me for this comparison, reminds me actually a lot of Nick Clegg in 2005, someone who arrived from the European Parliament, obviously in happier circumstances because we still were members of the European Parliament, as someone who arrived in Westminster as a force within his party. And I think it's, yeah, it's like an, an interesting figure and someone who I think in normal times would have been written up more because he, you know, arrives as a, a grandee. The other person in similar position is Claire Coutinho, a former Treasury Special Advisor, now Rishi Sunak's PPS, you know, very bright, usually the kind of like, you know, like the er example of someone who becomes a minister very quickly. And then on the Labour side, similarly, Sarah Owen, part of this kind of really, I think, undercovered group of people, yeah, kind of the sort of trade union spad, as it were, hugely well connected in in um, the GMB and the rest of the trade union movement from the middle of the party, someone who I think, you know, similarly, if she hadn't, in my view, taken the right position on the covert human intelligence service, be someone who would be talking about someone we might expect to move up a rung in the next reshuffle. And instead, I imagine well, her career will kind of, she'll be brought back, I would bet, but, you know, in, in at the same level as before. So those are kind of the three people who I think in a normal parliament, once the kind of like, oh, so-and-so has great tweets. Oh, so-and-so said something punchy about the Labour leader. I think those are like the three politicians who have probably done the worst out of the kind of coronavirus suspension of normal politics. Mm. So we've got a, a first for the podcast. 
a question coming at us via audio. Hi, guys. Long-time listener. First-time caller. I have two questions. The first is, what is the best pleasure pier in the UK? And the second less frivolous question is, which Conservative backbencher has been the most effective at engineering shifts in government policy this year? Thanks very much from Patrick, aged 25 and a half. <laughs> oh, it's, it's like old times. Oh, I actually feel quite moved. It's like, it's like when Yoda turned up in Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah, trust Patrick to force the conversation back onto the terrain that it would definitely have been on for this roundup of the year if he were ending the year with us. Because I suppose we have to concede to him that the best pleasure pier <laughs> in the UK is Bournemouth. <laughs> Joking. Southport. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I actually don't know if the two of you will agree, but I think that Patrick has set the question up perfectly such that the only correct answer is Steve Baker. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but this is the view that I would have arrived at on my own, um, even if I hadn't known that it was Patrick asking the question. So I think that if we are just thinking in terms of the single backbencher on the Conservative side who's influenced government policy, it really has to be him, I think, in that from... As early as May, you heard it here yourselves on the New Statesman podcast, from as early as May, he was making the case against against lockdowns and calling for um, a greater parliamentary say in those decisions and making the economic case against. And he was considered a little bit eccentric for making that case back in May. And over the months that came afterwards, he really has been, I think, quite a significant influence on government policy in that. I mean, I think it's worth saying that maybe that's maybe that's a coincidence. I mean, you know, maybe it's correlation rather than causation, because probably the more important thing is actually what Rishi Sunak was thinking for all of this time. But I think because Steve Baker, I mean, he and the Chancellor are quite different in some ways, but I think because Steve Baker was aligned with the concerns of the Chancellor on the big economic issues, I think it meant that as we started to come out of lockdown or, you know, in May when we had been in lockdown for a while, we were seeing the economic impact. You know, the UK had lost close to 20% of its GDP in the three months up until June. And at that point, it was the biggest shrinking economy of any in the G7. I think the the way Steve Baker and the Chancellor and the, and the wider sort of people in the Treasury and plenty of other backbenchers of whom he was the most vocal, they were all aligned in being increasingly concerned about the economy at that point, such that really we unlocked very quickly all at once, not in an incremental way, which we now know was what Sage was recommending, so that you lift one thing at a time so that you can see the exact impact that that has on, on infection rates. We unlocked all at once and looking back, that's sort of where the the big split between our health response and our economic response began to emerge. And that's where a lot of scientists would say the second wave really began. It was with those early decisions to unlock so quickly all at once and then with EDOT to help out. So I think that Steve Baker can be credited for being the first and the most vocal of a growing number of MPs who were sceptical about lockdown. And that thinking within the Conservative Party has shaped things 
in the months since. But he, you know, he was also this is an example of him influencing government policy. But he, you know, he was also the first to call for Dominic Cummings to resign, and you know, he was influential in the days of Brexit. And I think this year, in a kind of post-Brexit world, I mean, it felt that way, even though Brexit is far from over, as we well know. In a new context, he still showed how much influence he exerts from the backbenches and the sort of the important influence that he exerts from the backbenches. Do the two of you agree or would you have a different Conservative MP that you would pick as the most influential in government policy? Stephen? I would disagree firstly because the best pleasure peer in the United Kingdom is is in Whitby. <laughs> so Steve Baker has a really strong case right because either if we get a deal or a no deal it, the only question is does does Steve Baker get 95.6% of everything he's ever wanted and everything he and Brexit Ultra serve campaign for, or does he get 100% of it, right? That's the only question on the table in terms of Brexit. And although most of those achievements were in previous years, right, you've still got to like hand it to his abilities as an organiser, right? And a marsh- as a marshalling of people, right? There are lots of disgruntled people on the Conservative part- Party benches, but what they tend not to do is be that effective at like doing it beyond anything. However, I actually think that in taken in 2020 alone, I think it has to be Mark Harper, the co-chair of the COVID recovery group, for basic reasons. And although Steve Baker is rightly seen within the Conservative Party as someone who, you know, is good at organising people, is good at doing that shop steward kind of stuff, he also is seen as to quote one other COVID rebel, who I'd like to make it very clear is not the person I'm nominating. They were like, but Steve's a loon. And if you look at like the kind of sort of conservative establishment types, you know, like people like Nusrat Ghani, who is sort of, again, like the sort of epitome of someone you would sort of expect to just like gently rise up through the ranks of the of, of the party. Various kind of old and, you know, former spads in the 2019 intake, you know, like Anthony Ragnall or whatever. People like that lining up I don't think would have lined up with a, with a solely mm-hmm. Steve Baker fronted group. And I think like the fact that Mark Harper is, you know, again, former chief whip, former minister, very much the kind of epitome of like, a oh, you know, we've we've lost a minister because they've turned out and they've been selling. I mean, it's so hard to think of anything that someone in this government would actually have to resign for. They've, you know, been spotted like throwing oranges at children, being like, if you don't like it, vote for Keir Starmer, you triggered liberals, right? Like... <laughs> Someone like Mark Harper is like the, the essence of someone where you can like, oh, yeah, he's, he's competent. Yeah, he, he'll, he'll be able to do a job. He'll be fine. I think the amount of credibility his presence has added within the Conservative Party to rebelling on lockdown, I think, cannot be understated in terms of its influence on the government. Not because this government particularly cares about like the credibility of people like Mark Harper. This would be a very different government if they did. But because it has meant that in order to pass this stuff, they've been reliant on... If Labour hadn't abstained, it wouldn't have gone through. And it's possible that you could get to a point on lockdowns where Labour would have to vote for it in order for it to go through. And that is because of people like Mark Harper. And so I think it is the fact that the centre of gravity in the Conservative Party and not just its most effective organiser have moved on this is why I would give it to give it to Mark Harper over Steve Baker. I'm going to go for Felix Stowe Peer, actually, not because it's the best or the most glamorous, but because it's the peer that I've been to for the last 11 years with my friends. So this this year was the first time that we haven't been in that in that length of time. And the main thing it has going for it is that it's still got those traditional seaside donuts, which are 
I think one of the tastiest things ever. So, um, Patrick, please don't write mm. in. Um, in like terms Patrick of, is, uh, <laughs> is that they also have donuts at Southport or something. I bet they don't though. <laughs> I would like to know though because I, I feel like those kind of donuts are, are, are becoming rarer. And I'm always disappointed when I go to a seaside town and they don't have them. It's, it's bold to have been more granddaddy than than my rant about like <laughs> you and take MPs, Anoush. But but it's a strong contender. <laughs> <laughs> we need some new blood. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go for one separate from the coronavirus and Brexit stuff. I know that I seem to only want to pick former spads. So sorry about that. But um, I'm choosing Neil O'Brien, who is the MP for Harborough in Leicestershire, who was George Osborne's spad and, and, and Theresa May's spad as well. So he's been, MP, he's been an MP since 2017 and he's co-founder of the Tory think tank Onward, whose ideas have had quite a bit of traction over the past couple of years. And he also co-founded the China Research Group. So we've all chosen people from either a research or recovery group, which is sort of the new in thing for for conservative MPs to to be part of so that they can try and be influential and um, cause a bit of trouble as well. So the reason I've chosen him specifically was because he was one of the first and most vocal Tory MPs to break rank about the new formula for house building that the government announced in August. So this was really controversial. It would have weighted new housing to the Tory shires and affluent leafy suburbs because of the way that the algorithm was designed so it sort of required councils with the least affordable housing to to offer up the most land for for this accelerated building program so the government actually u-turned on this this week and changed its formula so now it's all about skewing building to more urban areas and neil o'brien was was behind that push and also, I don't know if if you've noticed, but he does quite interesting threads that that get a lot of pickup on on Twitter about sort of myth busting media stories. So there was one about some dodgy maths used in the Sunday Telegraph about the economic costs of the new tier restrictions, which were brought in at the end of the lockdown in November. And then there was a graph in the Daily Mail suggesting that excess deaths this, this year haven't been any higher than than the previous years, and he he sort of busts that myth as well. And I thought that was quite an interesting way of so Stephen you were talking about how it's difficult for MPs who sort of want to be loyal because their work is harder and their messages aren't as exciting in terms of headlines but he's kind of been defending some of the government's positions but through this sort of maybe more eye-catching way of doing it if you see what I mean almost a bit like a journalist so I found that interesting too. I think Patrick, aged 25 and a half from Southport will be very happy with that answer because we got (laughs) two of his favourite MPs in <laughs> it's all for you, Patrick. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C and my colleagues Alva Ray. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva A L V A. And Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to it and leave us a review.